501c4s have become a big topic of discussion in Missouri politics. Some Democrats and Republicans want donors to these groups to reveal themselves. Republican political consultant Greg Keller disagrees with this view, and he'll elaborate on this topic and much more on another edition of Politically Speaking. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy (laughs) SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to Politically Speaking, the only podcast about Missouri politics featuring hosts that are natives of Illinois and Indiana. (laughs) I'm your host, the pride of Buffalo Grove, Illinois, Jason Rosenbaum. Alongside me is... Uh, I guess Gas City's finest, Joe Manis. And and joining us for the second time, the pride of Clayton, Missouri? Clayton Clayton now Ledoux, I guess. Yeah, Clayton now Ledoux. What's your name, by the way? Greg (laughs) Keller. (laughs) He's just being, yeah, we know Greg very well. We're we're just being silly here on the show to start off with. Thanks for coming back. We're we're looking forward to talking about a whole host of issues. It's it's an exciting time in Missouri politics. Yeah, and just so our listeners know, Greg Keller is a Republican consultant is that the best way to describe you are you a lobbyist as well i believe i'm registered to lobby with the missouri century foundation here in missouri but not registered nationally federally okay so anyway so greg has his hands or his you know credentials in a lot of different pots some national Mm -hmm. some regional some in the state and it would it be accurate to say some local as well uh, yeah, I think so. I, I'd say I'm doing a lot of my work at the federal level these days, but we do have one of the more active C4 organizations in Jefferson City that's working on free market solutions. So Yeah, that's one of the things we wanted to talk about. Although I had to mention, you had some tweets today where you were jabbing new mayor Lyda Yes, Chris which I think we're going to talk about later in the show. We're, we're going to talk about <laughs> But my point topics. is that he deals with stuff on all levels. He, so you're, you're a jack of all trades, basically. <laughs> master of none. Master, master of none. Well, let's talk about the uh, 501c4 issue or the politically active nonprofit issue. Uh, people disparagingly call it dark money, however you want to mm-hmm. describe yeah, it. Yeah, and this has been going on for, well, actually, I wrote some, I first interviewed Greg about this a couple years ago, mm-hmm. yeah. and then it kind of came and go, came and went. But currently, it's been a really hot topic here for about eight to nine months, uh, partly because there were some uh, 501c4s, which they can take unlimited money, and they do not have to identify their donors. And there were some outside groups who are 501c4s or a related thing called 527s that were active in the uh, state elections last fall. Right after the election, soon after that, uh, newly elected, now Governor Eric Greitens, formed a 501c4, first to raise money for his inauguration, second a second one to raise money for... Um, it's called A New Missouri, and this one spends money on stuff to promote his agenda. Now, the governor emphasized to me this week when I talked to him a couple of days ago, uh, he said he wanted to make it clear that he is not involved in the day-to-day operations. How, that said, his 501c4 has spent some money and time 
and political capital, some would say, to attack various uh, members of the General Assembly, mainly state senators, when they've been when he and them have disagreed on some issues. So it's kind of heightened some tensions. And his senior advisor, Austin Chambers, is on the New Missouri's payroll. This is just kind of a backdrop here for yeah. for our discussion, so people understand where we're coming from. So before we get into Greitens, I know that when the issue of disclosing donors to politically active nonprofits has come up. You have been one of the chief critics of that idea, and I'd like you to explain why. I, I think it's a horrible idea. I mean, the, the question here is whether or not private individuals who are donating their own private money to private uh, organizations involved in politics should be required to register that information, including their home address, their phone number, their email address, their name, to organizations that they're giving to, like their churches, like the NRA? And should that information be kept by the government, and should it be kept at taxpayer expense and monitored by the government? I think some of the abuses that we saw by the Obama IRS and the Obama administration chilled um, a lot of people's enthusiasm for this kind of idea. And I think that giving government the power to track people who give those private contributions to private organizations is a big mistake. And I think the governor is exactly right on this. Okay, playing devil's advocate here. Uh, some on the other side would say, okay, that's fine if they're private organizations, but they're involved in public elections, and therefore the public deserves the right to know who is putting money into those elections. Now, in the state of New York, for example, they do require 501c4s if they're active in state or local elections. The, that part has to be disclosed as far as their money, how much they've spent, uh, who's, who's putting the money in. And that's been the argument of some of the critics here saying, well, if New York and some of these other states do it, Missouri does it. How do you counter that argument? Well, first of all, I'd say we've learned through the example of our neighbors to the east that just because a liberal state uh, east of us is doing something certainly doesn't mean that Missouri should you be doing You mean the liberal it. state with a Republican governor? I mean the liberal state that just announced that their bonds were uh, going down to junk level by Moody's and S&P today. Yes, Illinois, your, your home state. Okay. That makes me sad, by the way. But yeah. I be, I be, I'm sorry. I believe it's one grade above junk. Illinois just got downgraded okay. today. Hey, I, I could buy the state for the, the price of a musical video game company at this point, $50. No, but, but, but still, uh, as yeah. far as New York and these states that say, well, they do need to I disclose if they're involved in public elections. I, I think it's really chilling. And I can tell you that as a conservative who's involved in the political and public policy process, the idea of giving the people who run our college campuses access to private donor information is to me very scary. You are talking about the most recent Democrat president of the United States whose underlings specifically took specific actions to target people using the power of government simply because they were conservatives. They were targeted their offices were gone through. They were ransacked. Their organizations, in many instances, were shut down. In some instances, they just out and out refused to register any organization that identified itself in any way as being conservative. And the idea that we should be giving people, again, who run our college campuses, who run our IRS in that fashion, more information about private contributions by private individuals to private organizations is very scary. Um, and, and you talk about being involved in the public policy uh, process or politics. Well, they're not involved in politics. Being involved in politics, 
this is very clear. You're involved in politics when you call for the election of a particular individual or you call for the defeat of a particular individual. That's not what these organizations do. Okay, good. Explain that. Explain what they do. So what uh, NRA would say, for instance, is something completely factual. I'll give you an example. Claire McCaskill likes to talk about how she's a common sense moderate. The NRA would dispute that all day long. Why? Because Claire McCaskill votes wrong on Second Amendment issues from the NRA's perspective every single time she has a chance. So the NRA doesn't go out there and say, defeat Claire McCaskill. They set the record straight about how she is in bed with the Moms Demand Action folks and, and people like that who want to restrict Missourians' access to, uh, to firearms. Now, the group that you're involved in that's been involved in Missouri stuff, uh, the, the was it a, a new century Missouri Century Foundation Missouri Century Foundation I apologize for getting the name wrong um, I know when you first formed it a couple of years ago there was talk it might be involved in the healthcare stuff can you talk about what sort of issues that group has been involved in yeah in a short period of time we've we've only been around for I think three years now Missouri Century Foundation has probably become the most active uh, member-driven free market group here in Missouri. We've got, I believe, 65,000 members on Facebook. We've got 8,000 followers on Twitter. Uh, We really focus on free market solutions in Jefferson City at the state uh, level. So we were very active, uh, Joe, to your point, in making sure that Obamacare was not expanded here in the state. We took on that fight two or three years ago when the Missouri Hospital Association and others from the big business community were trying to expand Obamacare. We took on that fight, and we won it. We've been uh, very active on this dark money, uh, supposedly called dark money um, uh, business in Jefferson City of late. We've been big supporters of what the governor has done from a free market perspective, whether that's some of the tort reform things that he's done or the uh, pro-worker uh, issues he's taken on, uh, including, you know, what, what we're uh, – and so we really work exclusively on, on free market issues, and we do it exclusively at the state level. So have you guys, like, when you talk about you've been dealing with this, quote, dark money stuff, in what way? I mean, you want to explain that? Yeah. So we believe what I said earlier, which is that there should not be a government-housed, paid-for-it taxpayer expense, registry of private individuals making private contributions to private organizations that are not involved in politics, um, C4 organizations, if you will. Right. And, and that Missourians and Americans should be free. What's scary about this is that the modern political left – has become expert at using this kind of information that they now want access to to intimidate and harass their political opponents. I'll give you the most recent example. We have a new, in Washington, D.C., a new FCC chair. His name is Ajit Pai. He had the temerity, he's a good free market conservative, as you'd expect to be appointed by a president like Donald Trump. Ajit Pai had the temerity to suggest that we start going back to a regulatory framework at the FCC that treats ISPs, internet service, this is called net neutrality. Yeah, yeah, I was going to just say, okay, so, I watched John Oliver. So Yeah, okay, so, so he had the temerity to say, you know what, we're going to regulate the ISPs the same way that Bill Clinton did. The, 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 that's his right. huge crime. Right. So you know what the left has done to him? They've been picketing his home, taking photos through the windows of his children while they are at home. Okay, and these are the people who we're supposed to give phone numbers, email address, home address, name, all this stuff. We're supposed to give those people. And and mind you, okay, Ajit Pai, he's the chairman of the FCC. Like to some extent, you take on a position like that, you know some of what's going to come with it. Now, certainly he, he nor his children deserve the kind of treatment they've gotten from the American left of late. That said, 
We're not even talking about that. We're talking about private Missouri citizens. Pew, this is actually interesting. Pew, uh, left-leaning polling organization, but a highly respected one nationally here, came out with a study on this recently. They found that people who give to these kind of organizations, C4 organizations, this is a new new study they just turned out, 90% of those contributions made by Americans are of $250 or less. And Democrats are twice as likely to give money to C4-type organizations as Republicans. Now, how are they able to get any sort of stats on that since C4s don't have to identify their donors? I mean, they're a po- yeah, they're a po- yeah, they're a polling organization. I assume that they're going out and asking people, you know, have you ever contributed to a C4? If so, are you a Republican or Democrat? If so, what type of organization? Okay. So people are willingly giving right. that up. Right. And I want to emphasize that there are Democratic C4s out there. In fact, in Missouri, arguably the most active uh, C4 is Progress Missouri, which is uh, Democratic leaning and uh, is believed to be funded by unions and teachers groups and maybe others. We don't know. And but my my point being, this is not just a Republican phenomenon. Correct. Now, I want to just play a clip that might push back against the idea that it's only the left that's highlighting donors for political reasons. And so this is a montage of advertisements from then candidate Eric Greitens disparaging then Attorney General Chris Coster. And the governor and his campaign people have taken a very similar tact as of late to you that donors shouldn't be criticized or harassed for donating to, you know, 501c4s. This is the messaging they used against Chris Coster less than a year ago. He gave Hillary thousands. She gave Coster a half a million. They will never turn Missouri around. Career politician Chris Coster got caught red-handed in a national corruption investigation, exposed as one of the most corrupt attorney generals by the New York Times. Took eight million from union bosses for rubber stamping their agenda. So in all of those examples, the governor used the transparency of Missouri's campaign finance system as messaging against his Democratic opponent. Well, because he was able to to track to say Coster got money from this group and that group. And- so by the, the logic that the governor's allies and you just put forward, did the governor engage in harassing information against the donors to Chris Coster right there? Well, I... I think that that was a political campaign, and you see some people say things in political campaigns that maybe they make different decisions on in the future. I'm very glad that that Governor Greitens has been standing and taking the right stance on this of late, though, which, again, is standing up for Missourians' constitutional rights. Uh, they should be able to say what they – the sad thing is that this used to be a settled issue. This was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1958 in a case called Alabama versus NAACP. The state of Alabama in 1958 was attempting to get from the from from uh, from the NAACP their membership list in Alabama. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court found, rightly so, that no, you're not going to get access to that information because you're obviously going to attempt to use it to retaliate against these people in some way, shape, or form. So th- th- this used to be kind of a settled thing, and the idea that now the Democrat Party and the left is going against a lawsuit entitled Alabama versus NAACP is just incredible to me. Well, but I just played that clip. That wasn't the Democrats. That was the Republican gubernatorial nominee doing exactly what you're well, saying. Well, and at the time, I mean, because he, when he was on our show back in January 2016, you know, he was condemning um, secret groups and saying that he was proud of the fact that he put his donors out there. Now, for various reasons, and some of it 
I think it's because some of his donors did, later that year did get attacked, uh, some of his major donors, uh, right or wrong. And it, it may have been for that. That may have influenced him a bit. Yeah, but I mean, how, I mean, I, can you address that point a little bit well, more? I, I don't work for the governor. I never right. have. I'm not a spokesman for the governor. Understood. So I, I can't really speak to how this organization is set up, who is running it. How, the, the governor says that he is not involved in the day-to-day activities of this organization. He, he said it. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that what he said is true. Again, um, I'm I'm glad that the governor is is where we at Missouri Century and a lot of other grassroots Missourians are, which is we want to be free to give money to whom we want without being harassed. I want to make another clarifying point here. I know we're talking about um, revealing donors to 501c4s. Are you philosophically opposed to revealing donors to political candidates as well? Um, no, because those organizations are I, I, in my perfect okay. world. Um, my not my my ideological and yet probably not within the realm of possible world yes. because I'm a crazy conservative. Yes, <laughs> would be that the government probably shouldn't have access to any of this information. Okay. I understand that that is impossible and not going to happen, and you're not going to turn back the clock in that fashion. Um, I believe that the tactics taken on by the American left that you see on our college campuses, most recently the other day in Washington State at Evergreen State College, where they surrounded and shouted down one of their, uh, and intimidated one of their college professors. Um, I believe the tactics that have now become, via Saul Alinsky, have become the number one tactic of the political left are dangerous. I believe those tactics are dangerous. I believe the people employing them are dangerous. And I don't think that we should be giving people like that any more information on people's private uh, nonprofit giving than they already have. Is freedom of speech freedom from criticism? Because that's 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 kind of the message that I'm hearing from you right now. Like, can you address that? No, I don't. I, I'm not saying in any way, shape or form. I'm not saying that you can't criticize something. Uh, can't criticize. What I'm trying someone. to get at is like the people that are donating large amounts of money to either groups like 501c4s or to political candidates. You know, they're they're making a political statement by doing that. But when I hear that a lot of them don't want to be revealed as donors, I am tacitly getting the impression that they also don't want to face any criticism for their speech. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, first of all, respectfully, you're wrong on the points. I mean, the average donor, as we've already talked about, is not some mustache-twisting Republican. It is a Democrat giving money to NARAL, cutting a check for $100. And I disagree with that person. I don't think that their private contribution to that private organization that is not involved in politics should be made public. I will say, and I'm as a proud Republican, proud that we have not gone to the lengths that the left and the Democrat Party have in terms of physically intimidating people and using this information. So whereas that and this is something where it's difficult for, I I think, Democrats and the left to understand this, you, we have not turned this kind of force on your people. We just haven't. The people who are victims of this kind of thing are our Republican kids on college campuses. The people who are victims of this kind of intimidation and crime tend to be conservatives and Republicans. So I, under, so, so, so I can understand why it may be a little bit difficult for Democrats to, to, to understand this intimidation because, frankly, the Republicans and the right don't do it to them. Now, is there a lot of dis- – I mean, you you just came back from D.C., correct? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is there a lot of discussion about this, looking at it in a broader context in D.C., uh, or are are people less whipped up about it than they are in some of the states, like, like Missouri? I'm 
Yeah. Well, what, what's amazing about this, and I think is is just kind of emblematic of the hypocrisy of the left on this, is that the only reason anyone's the only people going crazy about this now are the left and the Democrat Party, the same people who are exactly silent on it during the entire eight years of the Obama administration. So if if they at least had the benefit of being consistent across administrations, they'd probably get the more benefit of that out from people like me, as opposed to what they do now, which is only cry and caterwaul about it when Republicans are in charge. So, okay, <laughs> this is great. You know, I like, like the mustache twisting thing. That, that was, <laughs> I think, they think you need to trademark that so we could. But let's talk about another topic right now, and that's a possible special session that could be coming up. It's in Missouri. Fr- it's Friday at 1.36 and 31 seconds right now. For all I know, we're going to get an email saying that there's a special session tomorrow. Well, and so there had been some discussion. I mean, Kate, what the rumor had been the last few days is that this is going to deal with abortion, uh, various abortion bills and stuff. Now, you, um, I, I want to make sure I characterize your relationship correctly. Um, have you been doing work for Right to Life, or it's just that you've just been dealing with them some? No. So what I've been doing in D.C. is I, I take on every once in a while political campaigns, people running for Congress, for instance, who are running okay. in a four- or five-way uh, Republican primary. So, so for instance, I, I worked last cycle with a consultant to Francis Rooney who was running in a congressional down in Florida. He was running in a very busy primary uh, amongst Republicans. I helped him build some bridges and relationships and get endorsements from national conservative organizations. He ended up winning. He is now the uh, congressman from from that area of Florida. I'm doing something similar for a candidate out of Oklahoma these days named Kevin Hearn. Okay, so because you and I talk, talked about this before we recorded, you said you could talk about this mm-hmm. somewhat as far as maybe what you're seeing in other states. What sort of legislation might be brought up? I mean, you know a lot of the uh, characters, uh, and I mean that respectfully as far as different legislators who have different bills that didn't uh, weren't heard this last session that may come up during a special session. I mean, do you have any sense of what direction this might take if it deals with abortion stuff? Yeah, I I think what you're hearing out of Jefferson City is that if they're going to go forward with, with future special sessions, and I think that they are, I think the governor's office wants to, to go forward with his Republican majority on issues where he knows he is going to get them. So, for instance, um, if he believes that he is going to have Republican leadership and he's going to have people like Rob Schaaf and some of the other conservative Republicans stand down, I think the governor's office realizes that he needs to move forward with consensus conservative issues. So you talk about the pro-life issue, for instance. There have been a couple pieces of news on this. And this is what I would expect the the special session to address. If I had to guess, I'd say there is going to be an abortion-related special session. I don't believe it's going to be next week. I think it would probably be the week following that. I think it will be rel- uh, reasonably soon is okay. what is is the language that I've been told, okay. which to me says we're not going to call them in on Monday, but we're going to call them in the following Monday. That's okay. my personal And guess. is it going to be on the bill that would effectively invalidate the St. Louis ordinance dealing with and, – and I'm I'm using the phrase by the proponents – it's an anti-discrimination ordinance against people that use birth control or have abortions or, or something along that. Yeah, lines. and the and the critics are are claiming that this legislation amounts to making St. Louis a sanctuary city for women who have abortions. So, I mean, is that something that you're hearing talk about, or will it be more like Senator Anders' bill, which is to try to step up uh, inspections at the abortion clinics or uh, monitor? 
what what happens to the fetal remains, that sort of thing. I believe and hope that it will be both. Um, we, you were talking about a particular court case. I believe it was Judge Sachs, at the, yes. at the federal court judge, recently invalidated some longstanding Missouri laws that would say that abortion clinics here in St. Louis need to have the same kind of rudimentary safety measures that you would have at a doctor's clinic that performs, for instance, LASIK surgery. Ambulatory surgical standards. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're literally talking about things that are as simple as you need to have uh, smoke detectors and, and things like that. This was a longstanding Missouri law. Uh, Judge Sachs came in and invalidated it. Um, and, and, you know, I think proponents pro-life and conservative and otherwise uh, know that this is a situation that needs to be cleaned up with regards to what's going on here in St. Louis. You know, from my from my perspective, what they're trying to do is that abortion proponents are attempting to make it so that organizations like the archdiocese and and various sisterhood organizations within the church here in St. Louis could be forced by the government that even though their entire raison d'etre, if you will, is to oppose abortion, they could be forced at their uh, 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 I guess, crisis pregnancy, uh, crisis pregnancy center to hire people who are go against their beliefs on that issue and could possibly attempt to, I guess, infiltrate the organization and, and hire people they don't want to hire. Do you think that requires legislative action or is it more appropriate for that case to go through the courts and let the courts decide on that? Because I could see a scenario where the courts strike that ordinance down because it, it violates the archdiocese religious beliefs. What, what's kind of your take on that? Well, it could or it could not. I mean, I think it could be done one of one of any ways. Um, it, listen, I think this is the push and pull of of our um, of our checks and balances system. You have uh, the people's elected representatives. M- Missourians have sent a Republican governor and now enormous Republican supermajorities to Jefferson City. They've spoken pretty clearly for years now about the kind of laws that they want passed. And then you have a judge who invalidates a long-standing law. So there's kind of that push pull there. And and who's the appropriate one to to make that decision? I can tell you that Senator Onder, who is pushing this bill, is, yes. is himself not only a lawyer, uh, he is also a physician. I don't think he's a practicing lawyer though, but he does have a law degree. So Correct. I think he knows the law pretty well. He does, I assure you. But continue. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's part of the push and pull of, of whose, whose view is going to come out on this. Is it going to be a judge who is unelected or is it going to be the people's duly represented, uh, duly elected representatives? Now, uh, just put this in a little, little bit of context. I did a, a feature on this that ran just a few days ago with Onder in it. Um, I mean, the, the judge's decision was based on a U.S. Supreme Court ruling last year that tossed out similar provisions in Texas. Some of it had to do, which which actually doesn't affect, does not affect the St. Louis Clinic, but it affects uh, if people, if Planned Parenthood or others want to set up clinics elsewhere, uh, because previously what's what's curbed that is the requirement that that there's admitting pr- privileges within 30 miles, and I mean and um, some other restrictions like that. Yeah, and then just and also for context, because I covered this pretty extensively, the ambulatory surgical standards, which were adopted in 2007, St. Louis already had those before that bill was passed. Columbia did not. Correct. And there actually was a lawsuit that was eventually settled with the Columbia Clinic making pretty extensive renovations. And when I say renovations, it meant widening hallways and putting in the things that you just talked about that would be in a you know, medical clinic and whatnot. But, but in, in any case, yes. uh, the Planned Parenthood operations that are based in St. Louis and Kansas City have made clear in the next few months they plan to 
reopen the one in Columbia, uh, get one in Springfield, possibly Joplin, and also one on the in in the Kansas City area on the Missouri side of the border. Right now, that clinic is on the Kansas side of their border. So Ander has said, you know, his concern is that Missouri may go from one clinic to all of a sudden five or six within a matter of a few months. Um, I mean, from your experience, what sort of things do you think the uh, General Assembly can do within the framework of the Supreme Court decision to either impose more regulations or try to discourage these new clinics? I mean, what's your take on that? My sense of it is that um, this is a conservative, some may even say deep red state that has had Republican governors for only 20 of the last 24 years. And whether you're talking about pro-life or lowering taxes or getting rid of duplicative uh, regulations, there is a stack on a desk somewhere in Jefferson City of conservative pro-life bills that should have been passed sometime over the last generation, but has not because of people like Jay Nixon and, and Bob Holden and the like. And Mel Carnahan. And Mel Carnahan. And I think you are going to see a Republican Party and a Republican governor that is going to work its way very methodically through those big, tall stacks. You know, you also mentioned Planned Parenthood. I mean, they've, they've got problems of their own. In fact, I was just reading a press clip from today. Eric Greitens, is, uh, the governor's um, office, smacked them down today um, because Planned Parenthood was uh, forced into admitting, this is on a, a CBS article that I just saw that I, I tweeted before I got in here, that they've been skirting uh, notification uh, laws here in in the state of Missouri and not been, been giving the kind of information they need to give to the state government here. And to Senator Honor's point, the fact that people who don't really know what their responsibilities are under the law and have just admitted that they've been breaking it for 20 plus years now, the fact that they're going to be responsible for all these abortion clinics gives me pause. Now, to be fair, it wasn't just them. Some hospitals in the state haven't been well, complying with that either. They threw some when okay. when they were informed that they had not been adhering to the law for literally since I believe 1979. Well, so, the, well the state hadn't been enforcing it. Now, I'm not defending that. I'm just yeah. I'm just laying out the facts. Here's the fact. Okay, but here are the facts that we know. They had not been, by their own admission, had not been living up to the law that governs them, had not been doing so for 30 plus years. Now, when they were approached about this by the media, they immediately threw their friends of theirs from Missouri hospitals under the bus and said, oh, yeah, well, these people are breaking the law, too. So, I'm not inclined to give them a pass on that, the fact that they're going to throw their friends under the bus the first time they get accused, rightly so, and have to admit to breaking the law for a generation. Well, I want to talk about the University of Missouri uh, for a little bit because yeah, I know you've this, been— this kind of ties into that. It, it ties in with the Missouri Century Foundation. I know you've been tweeting a lot about their enrollment woes. And for full disclosure, I went to the University of Missouri. Both of my parents went to the University of Missouri. My grandpa went to the University of Missouri— so I obviously have ties to that campus, but I'm not an apologist for that university. But with that disclaimer out of the way, I know that the University of Missouri has become sort of a punching bag for some conservatives, but not all conservatives, people of all political spectrums. I'd like to hear your perspective on kind of the, the state of the Columbia campus, because I know you've talked about it yeah. on Twitter. It's terrible. Um, it, obviously, what's gone on at Mizzou is terrible. You're seeing that reflected now. Can you um, be specific when you're talking? Yeah, about when you talk about the whole Melissa Click thing, and frankly, the left, the, the fascistic leftist behaviors that you see on the Mizzou College campus for a couple of years now, you are starting to see that literally flow down to the bottom line. And what you're seeing is you are seeing enrollment numbers 
at the freshman level that are off by enormous magnitudes, and everyone knows exactly why that is. Well, I mean, it, is it because of the protests? Because no one wants their ago? kids to go there. Or, who who or wants to it, okay. who wants to send their kids to a university where the ruling elite there think that it's okay for a teacher to physically assault a student if that student disagree, disagrees with their particular brand of politics. Like, that was pretty much like, at least in effect, was the stated policy of Mizzou. Now, I have kids. I have a 12-year-old. I have a 10-year-old. I have a 6-year-old. I don't know if they were going to go to Mizzou, but I'll guarantee you one thing. Five years from now, if Bobby is thinking about going to Mizzou, if they haven't cleaned up their act, I will absolutely not let him go to that campus. And if I'm doing it, so are thousands of other uh, parents across the state, and you see that as a fact in the at, at the enrollment level. Now, do you think some of the new leadership is trying to respond to that? Are you noticing any change? I mean, as far as what what satisfies you? Yeah, I tweeted about this yesterday. I mean, they actually had, I don't know if it was the new chancellor or, or uh-huh. who it is exactly. They, they put out a new um, uh, list of here is what our regulations and expectations are going to be on this campus with regards to free speech. It borrowed heavily from a similar document that was done recently at the University of Chicago. And they said, um, just because, basically what they said is, just because someone disagrees with you on something politically doesn't mean that you have a right to shout them down and physically intimidate them and bring their event to a screeching halt. Because again, this is the number one tactic of the campus left. They, 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 They literally won't allow you to disagree. They will scream at you and picket your event until it's shut down. So, so they are not about free speech. They're about no speech for their political opponents. I think this is a step in the right direction that Mizzou recently made issuing, um, issuing this, this, um, this statement about free speech on the campus. I also think it unfortunately shows how far we've become that our college campuses are now patting themselves on the back for respecting constitutional free speech rights. I'm going to be very nuanced when I ask this question, because if you even look at my Twitter archives, I was not a fan of what Melissa Click did. I thought it was completely inappropriate for somebody to basically tell a reporter to get off a public space. And I know I'm not supposed to have opinions, but when it comes to journalism access, I feel like we can't be unbiased there. One of the things I've noticed, especially among conservative groups when they talk about the University of Missouri, is there's this emphasis on the protest tactics and an emphasis on Melissa Click, but not really a discussion on what the protesters were protesting about, which was a feeling that both the University of Missouri-Columbia campus and to some extent, the city of Columbia had deep-seated racial problems and problems with racism. Now, do you think that might be another reason why people aren't sending their kids to campus there? Because those are real problems that haven't been addressed. Well, that never showed in a true statistical sense until Mizzou was on the front pages of every single website in this country for a month straight. So you may entirely be right. It's just not quantitatively there. What we do know is that after all this, after embarrassing themselves and making every misstep they possibly could for the course of months, the enrollment is now down enormously. Two things t- to your point, Jason, that you just said. Uh, yeah, when you act like spoiled little jerks and f- campus fascists, people are probably going to stop listening to you. Newsflash, okay, number one. So sh- clean up your act, start treating people with respect, and then maybe we can have a conversation. But, but unless and until that happens, and that is not happening on America's college campuses, um, you're not going to get a fair hearing, nor do you deserve one. That said, let's talk about what some of the facts are. I, I believe, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but my recollection, it's been a couple years now, is that someone may have taken in a bathroom and drawn 
they called it the poop swastika. Mm-hmm. Um, and that whether or not that occurred, I don't recall that it was any instance of organized bigotry on the campus. If it were, I would be one of the first people to rally against that. There have been other instances. I, when I was at Mizzou, for example, there were instances of racial strife, if I can use that euphemism, that were separate from the infamous poop swastika, as you mentioned, which would also be offensive to Jewish people like me as mm-hmm. well as African-Americans. And also, you know, black people weren't admitted on Mizzou's campus until the 1950s. And the city of Columbia has some pretty deep issues with segregation and racism, too. Yeah. Like, th- this is not just out of nowhere. Sure. And- but, but you look at their solutions, and their solutions, their, their solutions to this problem. We can have an argument yeah. and a discussion right. about right. whether or not there is a legitimate problem yeah. on the campus sure, of Mizzou. Sure. And I'm sure that with this issue, as with other issues, as with college campuses all over the country, is there a problem? Yes, I'm happy to have that conversation. And that's what I'm trying to get at. Sure. Continue. But let's talk about the solutions that they're putting forward. It's the same old, same old leftist, tired, you know, campus crap that you see everywhere, which is, oh, well, let, let's pump five more million dollars into the African-American Student Union as if that's going to help. Or let, you know, it, it, they're Band-Aid solutions that I don't believe the goal of which is actually to get at the root of a problem if there was is one there. Um, it's too often just kind of a cudgel that the left uses to bang Republicans and conservatives over the head. Now, I want to take a little longer view because I'm way older than either of you guys. <laughs> and actually, when I was in college, and this goes back to the early 70s, uh, and when I was in high school in the 60s, I mean, there was tons of protests on campus, and most of it campuses that was tied to the Vietnam War at the time. But my point being is that there were shootings, there was buildings being burned, and I'm not justifying any of that. But my point being, and speakers often got shouted down, there was stuff thrown. And I went to uh, a school that was tied to a, uh, I went to a school that was affiliated with the Lutheran Church. So the point was, even on campuses that in theory, might be considered somewhat conservative. There was all this stuff going on, and our admissions building got burned and all that. So my point being, when I see all this, without getting into the particular different issues, there there seems to be kind of a cycle, I guess is what I'm saying. And what I'm wondering is, why do you think, I mean, because many of the same tactics, I mean, hasn't gotten that far as what happened in the late 60s, early 70s, but still, the the campuses were relatively quiet for about 30 years, and now it's up, uproared again. Is it something about, um, I mean, why do you think that is? I, I, this sounds self-serving. It's, it's also true. I mean, I, I just think that there is a political paradigm within the American left now that very much says that the ends justify the means. I mean, you, you, you know, we're talking, for instance, about incidences of racism on American college campuses today. I, I would submit to you that those instances of racism on college campuses are being driven mostly by the political left. We mentioned earlier Evergreen State University in uh, Seattle, or, or at least Washington State just the other day. The, the whole root of the problem there was that there was a student group who wanted to have a whiteout, which is a day of atonement where the white students of that university would literally be required to leave campus for the day so that students of color could have the campus for themselves. A professor there, who's a liberal one, had the decency to say, this is 
the very textbook definition of racism, that these people need to leave our campus because of the color of their skin. Whether it's crazy incidents like that or the divest movement against Israel or whatever the case may be, these are not being perpetrated by Republicans or the right. The true problem with racism, I believe, um, on American college campuses resides with the left and not with the right. Now, is that to say, are there right-leaning jerks who are doing inappropriate things on our campuses? Yes, I'll grant you a poop swastika. But I believe that the real notorious big-time um, uh, incidents of, of racism on American college campuses are being perpetrated by the left. Well, looking at this broader, we're talking about the campuses and we're talking about special session, talking about 501z4. Looking at this broader going into 2018, what do you see as sort of kind of the climate heading into there? I, I saw this great tweet today. It was from someone to the effect of, you know, one of the one of the things that Donald Trump really has going for him is that his opponents always choose exactly the wrong political decision, reaction to everything he does. And what they were talking about in this instance was Trump pulls us out of, of the Paris Climate Accord. Howard Dean tweets that he's now going to stop buying American cars. Thank you. As a Republican and a conservative, Howard Dean, please keep talking. I mean, the left cannot, whether it's, they cannot help themselves. It's not just that they hate this guy. Okay, fine. I didn't like Barack Obama. But we were able to keep our wits about us in opposing him in a way for the most part. Well, let's say for the most part. For the most part. For the most part. Some would disagree with that, but I understand what you're saying. Continue. Um, So one of the things that Donald Trump really has going for him is that his his opponents just they, they literally cannot help themselves from having the worst possible reaction to everything he does. Um, and so I, I continue to think that the American public is roiled. I think they're angry. Um, I don't think they trust the media. I don't think they trust their quote unquote governing elites. Um, and I, I, I think 2018 is not going to be some some great snapback year for the Democrats. Well, let me ask you this question, because, you know, we're, we're coming off an election cycle where Donald Trump won the state by about 19 points, which is pretty much unprecedented. And I also just want to add, not a lot of resources went into making that happen. This was not a situation like in 2000 or this, 2004. This was a bottom up thing. Yeah. I mean, this was not like the, the RNC or Donald Trump's campaign poured in tens of millions of dollars. This was pretty organic. And my question for you is, let's just say in 2018, Trump's approval ratings are not that good. Is Missouri so far to the right and so Republican now that Trump's popularity or unpopularity may not matter in statewide races like the Claire McCaskill reelection or the Nicole Galloway reelection? Yeah, um, I, I think that if you look at the numbers of Donald Trump in Missouri right now, his fave unfave, for instance, Ain't all that bad at all. I think all. it's above 50%. Is it, Joe? Last, I That's know. what I've been seeing. Yeah. Last numbers I saw were 51 fave, 40 unfave. So he's doing just fine uh, here in Missouri. That is not a good backdrop for someone like Claire McCaskill. I mean, listen, I think Republicans against Claire McCaskill are going to run on two things. Number one, she was the deciding vote in favor of Obamacare. Uh, and number two, she voted against uh, Gorsuch uh, for the Supreme Court. I mean, like, those aren't necessarily, it, it just paints a picture. And I think that Listen, I think that she was partially smart and partially lucky in what happened with Aiken last time around. I think that if we go through a bruising, nasty Republican primary and then we nominate someone like a Todd Aiken who says or does something incredibly stupid like Todd Aiken does, then I think she obviously has a chance of winning in that environment. But I think to your point, Jason, 19 points. I mean, the undertow on her is going to be very powerful. I still think there's a chance she doesn't run. Now, now, oh, really? Okay. Sure. 
So I'm not sure I would if I were her. Okay. So looking at possible Republican uh, contenders, uh, are there any that you're putting your money on? Uh, you know, Ann Wagner, I think, is, has sent signals that she's looking at this very seriously. In fact, there was a piece uh, leaked in the national political media yeah. a couple months ago, that a couple weeks ago, rather, that she's probably going to make an announcement some sometime around July. There have been some rumblings in months past, including a, a draft letter about getting uh, Missouri Attorney General Josh Hawley to get into the race. Uh, that letter came out, was signed by a couple handfuls of, of good Missouri uh, conservatives. Haven't heard a lot out of that recently. I think if things continue on their current course, I think you're probably looking at Ann Wagner heads up against Claire McCaskill. What about Vicki Hartzler? I, I, I think Vicki has signaled and told people that this is probably not a race she's going to make. Yeah. I mean... Are there any other names who you think? You know, Hartzler's name always gets out there early. Blaine Lutkenmeyer's name right. always gets out there early. Um, but I think they've they've both kind of stay, taken a pretty so serious do you, step. So do you think Wagner may end up getting... I mean, I've been hearing actually it's going to be closer to August before she okay. formally announces, but... I'm just throwing that out there, <laughs> but <laughs> but but um, do do you think she's going to end up with any serious primary opposition? Do you think Hawley might be tempted to do it because there's so many prominent Republicans who want him to consider it? Yeah, I, I think it was a nice letter. I think it made a little bit of a splash. I don't feel that there was a whole ton of follow up after the fact. He may be sitting there and and plotting his campaign right now. But my own personal gut is that Ann Wagner, at least if things hold as they are now, Ann, uh, Ann Wagner will be the Republican nominee and probably won't face a serious primary challenge. And I don't have the clip in front of me, but Josh Hawley did tell both of us when I asked him pointedly, are you going to run for you know something else soon after you're elected? Pretty much said, I'm interested in being attorney general right now. That doesn't mean he's never going to run for anything in the future. Roy Blunt doesn't run for re-election in five years. I could see him being an extremely strong candidate for that. But I've also heard arguments that he should strike while the fire is hot. He doesn't have a voting record. And he got, actually, he was the largest vote getter in, in Missouri in November 2016. Only because he didn't have a libertarian candidate. Well, if he would have had a libertarian candidate, I don't think that would be the case. But mm -hmm. I'm splitting hairs there. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But I guess we'll find out in the coming months. Before we wrap up the show, I know you wanted to say something about Lida Krusen. And I guess she's joining the... the City city climate accords. I, I would be remiss to end the show without you uh, yeah. opining on that. There's 50 or 60 uh, leftist mayors yeah, around the country 60. who have decided that even though it's uh, this this Paris climate treaty was not a treaty because, of course, President Obama didn't put it to the U.S. Senate like he's required to for a treaty because he knows that it would never be passed. Um, they have now decided that with President Trump repealing or saying he's not going to enforce or step us out of the Paris Accord. These 50 or 60 mayors uh, are going to live by the Paris Accord themselves. And, and Lida Krusen tweeted this this morning. I think there's one of two options here. Option one is that this is an authentic public policy move, in which case it's economically illiterate. Because what you're going to do, what Lida Krusen is talking about doing is now punishing businesses that are operating in the state, or rather in the city of St. Louis, while companies two miles to their west in St. Louis County are not punished in a similar fashion. So it's so if it's substantive, then it's economically illiterate and stupid. If it's not substantive, then it's mere vanity. I, I just got to ask because a lot of uh, St. Louis activists would 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 chafe at the idea that Krusen is is lefty. They actually think <laughs> she's like the establishment conservative mayor. As as an actual conservative what do you think about the, the political spectrum of St. Louis that someone like Lida Krusen is considered conservative in some circles? I, I think I've lived in St. Louis 
for the I, I grew up here in 1977. My father worked downtown at one of the law firms. I have seen the slow, sad decline of St. Louis as a city, both in terms of population and in virtually every other way. One of the most crime-infested cities. I mean, this is what really upset me this morning about the Cruisen thing is you are the mayor of a city that is literally, literally the most violent in America, uh, that has crumbling, failing schools, terrible infrastructure, huge race problems. And she's going out there and trying to take leadership on international climate change. Like, mind the store, lady. Like, you got plenty of things that you need to get in order in this city before you start worrying about what the sea level is in Myanmar. Well, we'll leave it on that note, and I'll be twirling my handlebar mustache as I'm ending. <laughs> I actually don't have a mustache, by the way. But for all of our stories about mustaches and other things, go to stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And I believe you have two Twitter accounts. One is your main one, and one is, is dedicated to your hair. Yes. So my, my, my account is R Greg Keller, R-G-R-E-G-G-K-E-L-L-E-R. And someone, not me, I swear... Uh, <laughs> maintains a Twitter account for my hair, which is at Greg Keller hair. Which, which I, and he does have good hair. He does have great <laughs> hair. And I want to just thank you for coming in and talking with yeah. us as always. Thanks, and guys. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long.